0: So many people never see themselves represented in the classroom.
1: PhD programs offer little, if any, pedagogy training, let alone having to do with intersectionality or decoloniality.
0: We live in a time where old classroom conventions and ways of thought are proving to be radically insufficient. New approaches are desperately needed.
1: Hello, this is Justin.
0: And this is Ashley. Welcome to Pedagogies for Peace, intersectional and decolonial teaching podcast
1: an audio series that foregrounds critical pedagogies with a focus on intersectionality and decoloniality.
0: We come from varied backgrounds.
1: From political science, feminist international relations, native studies, critical media studies, American studies, and ethnic studies.
0: From philosophy, peace studies, gender studies, and political theory, to bring you insights from thought leaders and offer glimpses of what could be.
1: From transformations inside the classroom to rethinking what is possible.
0: Today's guest on the podcast is Miguel Guadron Ramirez, who holds a BA and an MA in philosophy from the Universidad Nacional de Colombia and a PhD from DePaul University in Chicago. He taught at Emory University from 2018 to 2020 and beginning in 2021 is assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religion at the University of North Texas. His work focuses on the interconnection between history, politics, and aesthetics in Latin American, Caribbean, and Latinx contexts in a philosophical attempt approaching these topics collectively. He's particularly interested in aesthetic theories and practices such as literature and film. And among numerous publications, he's currently working on a book called Decolonial Aesthetics, Praxis and Theory from the Americas that I'm personally super excited to read when it's done. Welcome, Miguel.
2: Thank you for inviting me. This is a great opportunity and I'm really happy to be here.
0: We're so happy to have you. I wonder if you could just start by talking to us a little bit broadly about how you would describe your pedagogy.
2: Yes. So the discipline of philosophy is a very special discipline. It's difficult to conceive, or I, I will not have a way to conceive of a more conservative, in a way, discipline in the sense of the kind of text, the canon, how it is read, how it is taught, the kind of people that teach this discipline, how the classroom itself is organized in terms of gender or race. And I think this is especially true in the, in the U.S. There's a demand of transformation that is very loud, but obviously as many of these things will take a long time. So I am intervening in this canon as a philosophy professor, attempting to use the resources that we have and consider critical pedagogy as a way to intervene in this canon. So I'm not interested in considering the history of philosophy as something that we should just overcome and not look at in any way, but I'm interested in intervening in this way in which philosophy is taught, the kind of people and readings that we do in order to show that the structure itself of this so colonized canon shows and says a lot about what philosophy is and what philosophy can do. So I am interested in acting this transformation in showing students, especially young students who are just starting to read philosophy, that this is our history and that in order to do philosophy you have to grapple with this colonial history and colonized history of teaching. Um, So again I'm interested in accompanying students to see the potential not only of transforming this canon, but also on taking control over their own educational pedagogical process so that in some ways this is not just a task that is on me that I have control over, but it's also on their part to intervene in this. And I think I follow here the reflections, the many reflections of a philosopher and thinking, a writer such as Bell Hooks who attempts to describe what Hooks called a feminist classroom and also a form of engaged pedagogy, which in a way would allow for this transformation of the canon, but as well the transformation of the roles of students, teachers, professors, etc. And the, one of the things that I do that that I find really interesting from Hooks' position and, and perception of this is to present myself as a member of this of the classroom as a member of the educational process i've read somewhere people suggesting that the real role of the professor should be to be invisible to sort of like the students forget that the professor is there and i don't agree completely with this with this idea i would say in my case the role is to make explicit the fact that i am there and that i am supposed according to a traditional way of teaching, to organize, to rule, to control, and attempt to undo that role with them. So present myself as someone who is also interested in undoing this role, taking risks, showing myself as a human being with flesh, with a body, with health, as vulnerable as human in general. And when we talk about the professor being interested, especially in this moment in the well-being of students, I think, Hooks also emphasizes a lot the necessity of focusing on the well-being of the professor as well as part of this, which is something that we don't do a lot. And this is, I mean, all of these strategies and ideas are related to a conception of critical thinking that I think is important to emphasize as well.
1: I love the idea of creating a feminist classroom to challenge and transform elements of the canon. And we all know that usually feminist approaches involve some element of intentionality. So how explicit are you with your students about your own pedagogical aims?
2: That's a great question that, I, that I'm still considering trying to understand. On the one hand, I think being so explicit about these strategies would only work for students who already have the, the opposite experience, right? So if I say something like, usually the professor would be this person that has no body, that is just a mind, that is that is never sick, that has no family, that has nothing, no one to care for, etc. And then I undo that, it doesn't make much sense. I think in that sense, it's more interesting to present myself in this way from the very beginning without making explicit that I'm that I'm trying to do something that is not done usually. Hopefully students who are just beginning their journey in college will not be Shocked by that, but will take that as the normal, perhaps experience, and then they might be shocked at other professors who sort of like attempt to present themselves in a different way or think that they should present themselves in a different way. I don't mean to say that that is just a decision, right? This is a demand that is, for example, gendered, right? It's very difficult to present. I mean, it's easier for me and it's a privilege for me to be able to show myself as vulnerable as a man than perhaps to an someone else who has to demonstrate a certain authority, demonstrate a certain superiority in the classroom to be taken seriously. I haven't experienced this, so it's also a way for me to grapple with this form of privilege that I that I have in this case. But in that sense, I am not so explicit with those strategies. But at some point during the semester, I always try to pause the class, stop everything that we're doing and sort of have a meta conversation of how the class is doing. I tried to do this a couple of times in the semester, sometimes even more last last semester during the explosion of of everything that is happening now. I had to do it a couple of times and just stop and say, how are we doing? What do you think of the class? What would you change about it? Everything that we have done so far This is a commitment that I have, and it's difficult to maintain, but everything that we have done, it's subject to be transformed and to be changed. And I opened the classroom to say, what would you suggest? What would you do? What is not working? What is working? And how should we transform this? And that leads to good discussions and interesting discussions. Last semester, my students revolted and sort of like said that they were tired of the syllabus that was being taught, that they did not connect with it, that it didn't tell them much in the present that they were, and we transformed the rest of the semester.
1: So you actually do shift when you get that feedback?
2: Yes, I do. I think even when I don't agree with certain things, even when they say something that I feel it's going well, maybe I don't agree that it's not working I will change things and I will try to take into account everything that they're saying and transform them. But I never do it just on my own. I never say, this is my, my responsibility. I am going to change this. And now you just wait and see what is going to happen. I always involve them in transformation. So if something that is happening is not working, what would you do to make it better? Not just me. I will change things about myself. Tell me what you think I should change. But also, what are you going to do to transform this? And so that suggests that they have control over this just, just as, as much as I have. And in that sense, if it is a bad class, if it doesn't work, it's not just my responsibility, it's the responsibility of everyone. Which is a, an idea that is very complicated to young people, to young students, especially, because I mean they don't have many, many examples of this, but they're also not used to participating and, and being in control of those things that much. So so it's a mixture of being explicit about certain things and not about about others i think the showing vulnerability and my humanity is something that i joke with them like all the time and and i think in a sense they know they know what i'm doing it's not a performance in the sense that i'm not that i'm telling them or lying to them or telling them i'm going through things that i'm not but when something is happening to me when i didn't sleep last night because my daughter woke up three times when we are dealing with conditions, material conditions in our family, in our household, etc. I tend to talk about that because it's also part of what we should be reflecting upon, I think.
0: Yeah, I like what you were saying earlier about being able to connect with students or set this sort of tone of the feminist classroom as the new normal with like maybe the hope that without having to present students with maybe a, a more outdated model of what the professor is meant to do or how classrooms are meant to be, that there's a space for feminist and decolonial pedagogues to like, set the course of what normal should be like. And I also know that in this particular moment, in the midst of a global pandemic, normal as a baseline has really shifted a lot. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about maybe how this semester and half of of last spring semester maybe has stretched or changed your approach to pedagogy or how you've been able to take some of these feminist and decolonial pedagogical lessons and transform them for the new situation that we're facing.
2: Yes, I have to say, I don't feel very successful in doing that. The shift to online teaching has been pedagogically I think very challenging for me, but there's a good lesson behind it or as a consequence of it, which is I realized that I was taking for granted which one or what is the right environment for teaching and for learning. I would just assume that the right environment is a classroom with a certain setting, the students looking at me and a whiteboard and uh, you know a computer in front of you where you can project things or whatever. And that is in itself, I think, a very colonized way of considering education and learning and and all of these things. So at least I think I gained the the insight that there is something wrong with that conception of normal. That that normal is, I mean, is normal in the sense that it is, it's being done, it's how it's done everywhere and for hundreds of years. But at the same time, it's something that clouds and, and blurs many things that are present in the classroom, but that I at least did not pay attention to or was not aware of. And one of the things is, is the, I think about this all the time, but, but now it's even more visible, like the material conditions of people, their lives, their households, their families, their privilege or not, their poverty, destitution, et cetera. So there is something there that you can now see. The fact that some people turn on the, the webcam uh, or their camera and others don't. The fact that some people cannot join all the time. I have students right now who are in China who have to take classes when we have synchronized classes at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. So those material conditions there I think are very important. I had students last semester who were who were sick, who were dealing with family members who were sick, who were in charge of siblings, several siblings because there was no no other adult. In the, in the household that could take care of them, etc. cetera. And now I'm seeing this more and more. So that's one challenge that I think, I mean, I'm still struggling with, but I think it's interesting. On the other hand, I feel that the fact that this is now so present and so clear allows or opens for us in class many routes of investigation that were not available, not explicit before. So in my ethics class this semester, for example, and last semester, we're thinking a lot about the virus and the pandemic and quarantine and, you know, ethical decisions that are made all the time in the, in the hospitals, of who lives, who is given certain care, how, in what way, the ethics of quarantine, the ethics of vaccines, the politics of it, the economic and material conditions under which people can access these kind of things. So that's something that I find interesting and that the current situation i think has helped i think so so in my exercises and activities that i do in the classroom more more specifically i have been able to continue using resources that students bring to the classroom as examples for example in my ethics class like questions and objects and issues that they have like practical issues that they want to bring to the classroom so what i do is basically i ask them to Every week or every two weeks, submit an object, a thing that's happening in the world that they think should be discussed from an ethical perspective. And then I give one of those resources like anonymously to a group of students that they then they have to present this issue and come up with questions and ideas and approaches. So we're all integrating, I think, something that is of value for every single one of us, for the presenters, from those who present to offer that subject. And for those of us who are listening to this and I try to do thinking of these like different kind of classroom and approaching what hooks calls a feminist classroom. I try to, I always try to at least a third of the class should be facilitated by the students. So I always have presentations that are completely under the student's control. I am just a member of the audience that sometimes would raise My hand and say and ask a question or say something, but I'm not in charge of facilitating, of explaining, of responding or anything like this. And we have been able to do this in our meetings online and and sometimes it's even easier because some students who are shy to, when it comes to speaking in classroom, raising their hands, feel more secure behind maybe their screens or, so I have had a lot of comments related to that.
1: Have you found that being flexible and responsive to your students requires more work per class, which obviously can be really tough if you're teaching multiple classes? But I'm also curious how that's looked like in this time of remote
2: teaching. This is something that we have discussed, and there is all the time under consideration the fact that many times the burden of this going online, the transformation of the practices, is on the professors who are already affected by this as any other worker, I mean, maybe better than many, many, many people, but but also affected in the sense that our children, for example, if we have children, are home, so we have to be with them, take care of them, homeschool them, make sure that they log in. I don't know what they do in these online classes, but sort of like help them do this thing at the same time working full time, at the same time dealing with all the anxiety and all the things that being at home all the time brings to everyone. And on top of that, we have also to reconstruct everything, redo everything. So last semester was especially challenging. I think this was the experience of many people. We transitioned online during our spring break week. And so we had the time at least to devote a week to consider how we would do this, but it was very difficult. I think in my current situation, my university has been very good at providing resources for professors to think, and to learn how to do more things online, workshops. um, We took an online class on strategies, resources, ideas. And that was also constructed by the people like whose work is doing this, like working with online technology, but also with input from the professors themselves, like things that they have done that helped, things that they did last semester that helped, et cetera. So that was very helpful for me. And I think... At the very least, institutions should offer this to to professors, like support all the time, but also a training, a new form of training that is also paid. So this is another thing that my current university did. We were paid for participating in this workshop, and it was not a small amount. It was not a a symbolic Mm -hmm. amount. It was a real amount that actually paid for a lot of time that we spent, like watching videos and writing and doing things. That was because of the pandemic shift to online they did that? Yeah, so this was done over the summer. So not last semester, but over the summer, we took this class and we were paid for that. And I think that's great. I mean, that's something that perhaps is shocking to hear for, for many of you who are listening because it's not a traditional way of doing things, but it's a right way and it's a list that universities can do. I mean, many universities could do so much more like uh, investing in then like technological resources, pay for your internet, and so many other things, right? Books, and now that we don't have access to real books, at least ebooks or things like this that we could buy if they're not available to the library, so many other things. But, but I think this is a lot of help, and this is... So I agree with you that we have this burden on us, but institutions should be able to do so much more uh, related to this. I have heard a criticism, also on the other hand, that... By accepting this, by accepting going online, just doing so much work, that transforming our syllabi into this thing that we can share with students, more working endless hours in our Canvas or Blackboard pages, that is a lot of work. We are sort of accepting this as the new normal. And then universities are going to start just relying on more online classes to cut expenses and things like this. And I hear that criticism and I agree that there is something about this flexibility that we are incorporating in our own labor that might be just taken as the, as the new normal in a way. So more expected from us, even more work, even more commitment. My father is a teacher, a professor in Colombia, and he had a, a difficult time. He still has a difficult time going online because it's, I mean, we take for granted a lot of the kind of technology that we know and sort of like I, I know how to do these things. I can learn fast. And this is not the case for so many people, and especially not for so many students as well who have to deal with this kind of thing. And so I think there's something about this criticism as well that I think it's important. I, I wouldn't know how to answer this, this question as well. Is it correct? Should we refuse to go online completely? Should we say, not because we want to go face-to-face <laughs> and take the risk, but we should maybe do more to resist this what is being expected from us or demand more things like, I don't know, some sort of like child care that is offered by universities that sort of like help in this way.
0: Thanks. I wanted to ask you a question as a fellow philosopher. Yes. um, Yes. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned earlier, philosophy itself has like a very specific canon that is often incredibly European and Western But it's also a canon that, in my experience, tends to think about the process of learning or the content of knowledge as something that's wholly rational, right? It's just something that happens in your brain in a sort of disembodied way, the way that philosophers often talk about this. Kind of critically is like, we're just brains in a vat. And all you need to do in order to understand the world is just have this super clear, rational, scientific, objective calculation that you can make on the basis of having the best data, the best information, mm-hmm. and actually by abstracting yourself from all of your particularities. Yes. And what I hear you talking about so much in relationship to your students and your pedagogy is actually the power of re-emplacing your mind inside your body and inside your context. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that as a philosopher, as someone who works on theory, and as someone who teaches theory, like what that experience or that journey has been like through your career and with your students.
2: Yes, that's a great question. So I think like this demand of thinking in this way, I'm teaching Kant this, this week actually on like ethics in my ethics class. And I saw a reaction on uh, the students, again, through a screen, but I saw a reaction when we were discussing sort of Kant's uh, very explicit demand of the ethical actor to remove, all of these conditions that they act in, sort of like take away all of these practical, particular, contextual conditions that they act on so that they could reach this, at least attempt to reach this form of universality that should be morality, something that should be agreed and applied to everyone regardless of the context. And I saw in them like shock, like amazement that someone would demand this from an ethical action, also from an ethical question and I think there might be something that we have to construct in philosophy to arrive at this very crazy idea that, as you say, we're basically rational beings that have no input. So they struggle. I think students struggle from the very beginning with some Platonic suggestions about this when we read the Apology, when we read Kant, in a way. So I believe now that as students of philosophy and, and philosophers, we have been or attempted to be convinced that this is philosophy and this this is the way to think that we have to disembody ourselves and so what I try to do is never do that never construct this for students so that they have to deconstruct it later so I constantly ask in class this is difficult because we're not not used to share so much about us in the classroom and sometimes I share maybe too much about myself and my life and my daughter and my partner and I begin classes usually trying to ask them something that happened in their lives this week, like something good, something that they are proud of or that they were happy or something good that happened to their families. And the first time I ask this question, they are like, really, should I, I, are you really asking this? Should I tell you something that happened to me that was, but I think like by creating this sort of environment, they are never taught. They're never convinced that they have to get rid of those things in order to think. So in my assignments, I try to always ask them for their conditions under which they are thinking about this. So if we are thinking about the body and the soul, reading Plato and and Augustine and contemporary theories, I ask them not only to think what the author said, but also what do you think about this? How does your beliefs, religious beliefs or your communities or your parents Consider this. And how do they think about this? What do they think about the soul and the body and the connections? What kind of thing that has happened to you in college, for example, has made you think that you not only think with your soul, but also that you have a body that thinks with, for you, and that when you don't sleep enough, you're going to think less or it's going to be more difficult when you take crazy studying pills and you stay awake all day, then next day you're not going to be so ready to go to class and to say meaningful things. So that's one way that I try to do this. I think there is also an interesting way of including, that attempt to include readings always in my classes that think this question very explicitly. So that would explicitly tell students when they read it, what is the role of affect, emotions, feelings, materiality in thinking, right, in thinking philosophy, in doing philosophy, which is something that canonical traditional philosophy not, not always does, I think, and it's interesting to consider it this way.
1: Miguel, can you share with us one text or an experience that has shaped your approach in the classroom?
2: Yes, I always think of this. So at poll we had to teach a class called multiculturalism in the U.S., and actually, we created, or you were teaching this with other people before me. So I, I used a lot of your syllabi and, and ideas, and we created this class on prison abolition. So to teach multiculturalism through prison abolition. And like I cover, including the, the history of some of these ideas of multiculturalism through the test of what is happening in the US, which is supposed to be this multicultural. Society and in what way we deal with that, and how it's that reflected in the in the prison itself. And two things happened in those classes. I taught that class several times. One was that Trump was elected when when, during that time I was teaching that class, and so the day after he was elected, we had class, and I was, I mean, we had a reading and we had had something prepared, but I but I came to class interested in discussing with them what the election meant and. Something very interesting happened there. So um, Chicago is not like a especially conservative realm. The classroom at the poll was, I mean, we had maybe one, two conservative students who were really against sort of like the kind of ideas that we were presenting. I was presenting in class many times, the readings that we had. But when I offered the question, what do you think? I remember I said, what does this election mean for you? What does this mean for you, your family and your community? So not just what you think, are you happy, are you unhappy, stronger, but I think I started having reactions from students who never said anything in class before, who were very shy, who were, never felt perhaps that, that they were confident enough to discuss philosophy, to talk about the reading, maybe do offer an example. And I heard their voices in a different way, in a very different way. The fact that this was a random thing that happened troubles me in a way because i think it's important that this doesn't happen by chance that we do these kind of things in the classroom on purpose and that we hear from people that sometimes don't feel that they have to contribute from the more as ashley was saying traditionally philosophical perspective which is this very intelligent person that has read so many books and that has a huge library in their houses etc but also like a way of thinking about life that is available for everyone no matter their conditions and so a lot of students latinx students people that have written interesting things in class but uh, for that class but never said anything started saying many things and there was a, a small confrontation with some students but i heard their voices and i was affected by their voices in a very interesting way i think the classroom really changed that day we still had some sessions left the other thing that happened in one of those classes was at the end of the class, I said goodbye at the end of the semester, I thanked them, and a student stayed, and she came to me and said, I hope I've not been inappropriate, but I wanted to tell you that you look exactly like, like my uncle. You are his vivid image. Like Whenever I got into the classroom, I, I saw my uncle in you, and my uncle died a couple of years ago, she said. So from the very beginning, coming to this class was very interesting. She was interested in the readings and in the content, but also a very effective experience of seeing someone close to her, like maybe in a way represented and and presented in the classroom and having conversations with someone that looked like her, that was like her in many ways, that shared an accent, a background, and also maybe a, a little bit of a way of looking at things. Which is something she said that has never happened to her in the past. And that has also I think about this all the time, because there is a way in which I mean, I am never the person who is going to say that representation is like the goal and that we what we need is sort of like a percentage of participation of if if everyone looks like me in the classroom, then everything is okay, because I, I don't believe that. I mean, kind of, I can talk about that. But I think there is a sense in which Transforming classrooms also in that way is interesting. And seeing people speaking up in class that don't, are not represented usually, I think it's interesting. And, and I think it's a powerful, powerful experience. I have another one, but I don't want to take too much time. So maybe we can. Please share. We'd love to hear it. Sure. Okay. Awesome. So (laughs) I taught a class on philosophy of education also at the poll in the College of Education. And that was a great experience. Because it was the first time that we when we're trained to be philosophers, we we know that if things go well and we're lucky, we're gonna end up teaching in a university, or that's maybe the goal, but we're not really given any resources or tools to teach, or at least that was my my experience. A lot of classes, we're just given a lot of classes to teach, so we have experience in the sense that we're there for hours and hours teaching. But there is no real training for what to do, how to do, no pedagogical, not even philosophy of education. I never took a class on that, which would be not enough, but would be a good approach. And in discussing all of these, were students, like teachers, people who were interested in teaching, like 30 of them or 35 of them, which was a very special setting for me and also very enlightening in many ways. Many of them had experiences teaching, working uh, in childcare taking care of other people as mentors, tutors, etc. So they had a lot of things to say about pedagogy that I never encountered in the books that I was teaching about philosophy of education and definitely not in the experiences in in the classrooms that I was part of before and not even discussing with my friends and schoolmates about what it was to teach, which was a great source of of understanding and practice, so I learned a lot from them, but we were all sort of like trying to understand something of everything that was happening without really having many of those tools, so that was a great experience, and I taught a text there in that class that I fell in love with that I would like to teach again that is called Educating for Insurgency by Jay Gillen, Gillen, subtitle of that is that the roles of young people in schools of poverty and it is sort of like a us american way of putting into practice many of the things that paulo freire and even bell hook said in their books about teaching and and pedagogy so i would recommend anyone who is interested in in considering this in thinking about philosophy of education and education in general to take a look at this book which is based on an actual experience that is ongoing of what they call the Baltimore Algebra Project, which is uh, very briefly, is a group of students in the Baltimore public schools who came together and organized classrooms of tutoring math for students, for disadvantaged students, and, and people who are struggling by the, by students themselves. So not a professor who, or a teacher who made them do this, but they organized themselves to, to do this. And they, in order to do that, they have to deal with educationists as a practice, as a practice for transformation, as the author says, insurgency, as a tool for insurgency, which I think is a fascinating idea.
0: I wanted to invite you to say a little bit more about something that you just said, about the limitations of representation. I think that often when we talk about anti-racism or decolonization or feminism in the university classroom, the first step that many institutions or instructors will take is to diversify the identities of the authors they're reading in the classroom and or the university will attempt to hire a more diverse group of faculty members. And I I don't take what you said to be critical necessarily of those two things, but Mm -hmm. rather to highlight that there are some limitations there that we might think beyond or push beyond. And I was wondering if you could just say a little bit more about your perspective on the representation question.
2: Yes, definitely. So basically, the idea would be that, that we have to limit the way in which we consider. We have to see the limitations of considering politics only in terms of identity, so that identity will not be enough or, or con- reconstruct our societies in terms of representation of certain identities is not enough to transform the relationships that we have among each other, our structures, our economic, productive, social structures at all. And what we face, which is a huge danger and a threat by this, is just to replace the figures and the people who are implementing the same kind of system, basically at any level, the university, in the economy in the forms of production and reproduction etc so we are threatened with for example if we want to consider feminism or, or a feminist approach to to a transformation as just having women representing or women in in, in uh, roles of power and ceos and uh, administrative positions etc we are facing the possibility of just having a form of I don't know how to call it, like a business-like CEO sort of feminism, which is basically, yeah, we want to have women as bosses, but everything else is going to be the same. They're still going to be the boss. They're still going to exploit workers. They're still going to demand certain things. But now we have certain things that men by themselves will not do in these positions. So in that sense, I think what I'm trying to say is it's not enough. I agree with you, Ashley. It's very, very important to transform the face and to transform the people who are inhabiting these roles as well. So it's unacceptable that the percentage of women, uh, people who are non, not men, people of color in the discipline of philosophy, professors, for example, and PhD students is so low that the percentage of, for example, Black women who are doing their PhD in philosophy So this is unacceptable. It has to be transformed. And we have to take measures in order to transform this. But to do this is not going to be enough at the university level and also not enough in order to transform the discipline. And maybe the threat, the other threat in this case, is that we end up like, I don't know, in teaching transforming the canon, for example, one easier way would be just to make sure that you have at least half of the class or half of the readings in the syllabus written by people different than the usual philosopher and how we think of the usual philosophers. So include women, include people of color, and that's going to be enough to transform the discipline of philosophy. And as as we said before, I don't think this is going to be enough at all. We also have to transform the way in which we do philosophy. And for that, that's not depending on identity. That's not depending on the identity itself. But we can have what we call a feminist classroom presented, defended, enacted, and reconstructed by many different people. We will not be able to have it just by one group of people, but we need this kind of connection and sort of like reciprocity between these two strategies, let's say.
0: So, Miguel, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your approach to integrating intersectionality into your classroom in a way that avoids tokenism.
2: Yes, yes, definitely. I I think as we were saying before, there is this risk of just replacing figures or replacing moment spaces with figures without attempting a real transformation of of the how and the what we're doing in the classroom. So I think in my classes, what I try to do with my syllabi is include questions that come from groups that are usually not represented, groups of people who are not represented in the philosophy canon at all, but not not as examples of something. So not as now we are going to read what some Black person thinks about politics. Or now let's read this other perspective. So not in the sense of a perspective that is equally put on the, on, like, the other side, but a way in which these examples and, this, and these readings and these people are intervening in what philosophy is in itself. Not only giving us an example of another way of looking at politics, but intervening in what politics, or political philosophy in general, is. So, I don't know, teaching, for example angela davis or Franz fanon or anzaldua there is a way in which you can just present it at, a, at examples of identities or of defending certain identities or representing identities but there is another way in which we can read them by showing that in order to understand what they're saying you have to deal and grapple with the whole thing with the whole structure so the structure cannot be maintained as the same if we are really taking seriously what they're saying so angela davis intervening in the history of the participation of Black women in in social movements and in in the thought of of what the political is, will not just be taken as filling the the category or the day of person of color or a woman, etc., but actually showing how that identity, that category in particular, has been created through a history of understanding certain other categories. Or Ansaldúa will not just be the Chicana example, right, that you add at the end of the syllabus, but actually, by reading her seriously, we are intervening in that, in that tradition, because it's impossible to understand this category, this thought, without putting into question the whole point there. And yeah, so in my aesthetics classes, for example, we read about, well, Hook's uh, understanding of the role of photography in African-American households and, and her own example, not as an example of Black aesthetics. But it's showing how considering aesthetics from a Black perspective is a different thing in itself that would require to understand aesthetics as a whole in a very different way. So I think that would avoid, avoid tokenism and at the same time transforming and shifting the places out of which and the experiences out of which we think philosophy is done and we think with philosophy. Well, thank you so much,
1: Miguel, for your time. Uh, you've you. given us given us a lot to think about, and, and given our listeners a lot to think about as well. So I know that we'll continue the conversation, and it's so great to have you today. We appreciate your time. Thank you again.
2: Thank you so much for the invitation. I had a great time.
0: Thanks so much, Miguel. So, Justin, that was a super exciting interview with Miguel. What's sure sitting with you? What's what's like animating you or exciting? Yeah.
1: You? Well, you know, I have to be honest. I think when we first started, just thinking about what he said, like, where are you theorizing from? Where are you processing from? I was a little bit down because, you know, just recently we heard news that critical race theory is sort of being banned or barred and that there's this movement to promote patriotic education, I think it is. I was just sort of thinking that these spaces that we're trying to think in and that we're trying to move into are actually under threat, which is nothing new, but to have it so visible really kind of brought me down. And I think that it was nice because you know sitting through this this conversation it gave me more energy, right? Because it felt like he kept bringing back this idea that hey, I'm a human being and maybe I overshare with my students. And I also asked them to share who they are. But because they are aware of their materiality, the space in which they're theorizing, it actually makes them more effective. It makes them more eager to actually understand that, you know, maybe the canon needs to be rethought. So to me I think we went so many different places that it gave me a lot of energy especially when I've been down a little bit thinking about the the future of critical race studies. How about how about you what are your initial intuitions?
0: I just I really like that response because it part of what Miguel was was talking about was the necessity of thinking about your conditions of thinking. Yeah. And that's okay. not just about right the classroom it's also about your and my experience of doing these interviews and thinking with others about the things that we're thinking about. And so in our context, when Trump says like, we're going to try to, you know, root out all these radical, critical race theorists and replace it with quote unquote patriotic education, which is just a dog whistle for all the things we know it is. It's like, that is also a part of the condition of our thinking that needs to be rethought or Mm -hmm. needs to be Pulled into the frame.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'd say, you know, I really appreciated how you followed up and kind of, you didn't push him, but you, you asked him for more words around that idea of like, without tokenizing, or you would say, is it just a matter of having people of different identity in, in roles? And I'm glad that you pushed him to answer more because I loved what he was talking about. And I wrote it down here where he says that transforming the way we do something like teach philosophy is not going to be just dependent on just changing identities. And then he I think he even brought that even further when we talked about when he engages works from different cultural spaces, perspectives, he doesn't use them as just examples, but okay. actually ways to completely undermine and challenge the canon. Right. And so to me, I think it was a great follow-up question because when we see popular discourses around race and difference, it's usually so identity-based and so sort of like, you know, siloed that we forget that it's actually much more nuanced than that. And when we're siloing, we're actually doing ourselves a disfavor. right? We're doing ourselves a disservice.
0: Totally, totally. And, you know, dear listeners, don't worry. We are both on board with many forms of identity politics. And sure. I think identity is important and crucial and definitely, you know, a part of a liberation project. But I think the sort of process-oriented way that Miguel was thinking about why are you putting people on mm-hmm. your syllabus and if you're putting people on your syllabus as representations only of their identity you're actually like losing the opportunity to engage with the content of their work as powerful and transformative and yes embedded in their own experiences part of which are about their group-based memberships but it's also about like in order to understand the topic or theme or question under consideration, like the content of this perspective is really important. And I think like, it was just really helpful to hear Miguel articulate something that I've long felt, but have often struggled to have a language about, about how like it can mean really different things with the same person on your syllabus, depending on why.
1: Absolutely. I think one thing that also struck me was, uh, the amount of trust that he had in the students, that he has in students, right? To be able to go in a direction where he actually thinks it's going well and then getting feedback where he actually would incorporate some of those changes into the classroom moving forward. I, I think one of the phrases he mentioned that stuck with me was that idea that the class is a, a responsibility for everyone. Mm. And I like that idea, right? But it's certainly... Um, It's daunting sometimes thinking about that because it's so much easier, as my question kind of implied, it's so much easier to have your whole lesson plan ready for the whole 10, 15, 16 weeks. But then also, I think particularly in this day and age where, you know, so many people are dealing with many different things, whether it be racial injustice issues or obviously the isolation of COVID, that you have to allow for some flexibility in just how the students are receiving The environment of your classroom. And if you're not, then you're almost really contributing to that that sort of objectification or subjugating individuals to knowledge that's really not applicable to them. So I like that idea of really allowing students to be trusted, right, in their own learning endeavor and being part of that.
0: Yeah, I do this a, a bunch with my students, but one of the formulations about this that I thought Miguel had that was particularly excellent is that I think, you know, we have this traditional model of the classroom where the professor is like, you know, the leader, the sovereign, the discipliner, whatever. Uh And then I think sometimes when we talk about radical pedagogy, we kind of think about just flipping that dynamic where then the professor sort of fades into the background and is just some sort of quiet observer who still needs to assign grades at the end or something. But I really liked Miguel's formulation about transforming the power dynamics of the classroom so that the professor is a member of the classroom, Mm -hmm. right? And like the students and the TAs and everyone else who's in the class has knowledge and expertise and experience to bring to the classroom, but is not the only person with knowledge and experience to bring to the classroom space. And so to think about like sharing responsibility for the classroom space, sharing the obligation for making it a productive and exciting learning environment, that kind of formulation feels much more exciting and powerful to me than, you know, either of the, the extremes like professor as the sovereign or professor mm-hmm. as the, you know, invisible silent receiver right yeah
1: it seems like it's much more relational than say transactional right that you're actually totally. trying to engage people and who they are and what they are and what they bring and you're not trying to say that you know everything because obviously especially when it comes to issues around race and gender and intersectionality and decoloniality we don't know everything
0: totally but it's also not that like instructors know nothing right yeah, which i often yeah. find like sometimes in the radical critiques of the university, we end up in this space that kind of implies Mm -hmm. that because the university system and the world that we inhabit is so deeply damaged and messed up that therefore the instructor brings nothing of value to Mm -hmm. the classroom space. Mm -hmm. And I, I worry about that approach because I think it abdicates a kind of responsibility for membership in this somewhat ephemeral community where, like, I do have obligations to bring myself and my experience and my knowledge, but I'm not the only one who does, right? Like, everyone has this shared and equal obligation. Mm -hmm. I think the other, just like, a really elegant phrasing that Miguel had that I found really, really interesting was he talked about his role... In the classroom, as accompanying students Uh on a journey rather than like leading them or following Uh them. And I think there's something really suggestive and interesting about, you know, like I I often think about it for myself as like curating, you know, like I've curated a set of texts, for example, or I've curated a set of Uh assignments that I think are gonna build certain kinds of critical and reflective thinking skills. But also this process of like accompanying students, like being with them, like standing next to and with them, I found to be really, really provocative in a nice way.
1: What I think what's interesting is, you know, you have a background in community organizing and I was a a community organizer for a few years as well. And it's like, that's what you do, right? When you're in the streets, you accompany people because you realize that you're not going to be with them the whole time. Yeah. Right? Like you need to help them kind of on their own path, whichever way they're going, and you're with them, allowing sort of, you know, pointing the right direction. But yeah, ultimately it's a shared journey. So it's interesting how, you know, the only other space that I see that is actually in like community organizing. And can we turn a classroom into that model in a sense, right?
0: Yeah. And I think once you like get in this frame of mind, this like community organizing, like we're equals and we have different but complementary skills. I think for me, at least, I begin to be more open to the prospect of being transformed by my students and learning from them. And right, rather than this like assumption that like I've got all the knowledge because I've read the texts nine million times, and now I'm going to deposit them like a little seed into the brain of my students. The sort of sense of like openness and vulnerability to be transformed and to be pushed and stretched by my encounters with my students. So it's just a really different way of, of mm-hmm. relating.
1: I'd say I really found a lot of hope in this, this conversation because I, I think that, you know, Miguel represents what I feel students are really longing for, which is meaningful, relationship-based, and thoughtful approaches to rethinking what we're inheriting, right? That totally. canon, right? What What is that we're inheriting? And I think that he brings this really nice, soft, gentle understanding, and yet, obviously very sharp and analytical. But I feel that today that's, that's what young people are looking for. They're looking for relationships. They're looking for a relational way of understanding the world. And also one that we can actually get beyond just these identity politics. So I found, I found a lot of hope in what he was bringing.
0: Yeah, I also just like the idea, like, again, just such a hopeful idea about like, if we change how we are teaching, we can actually reshape what normal classrooms look like, right? Like, like if we're the Mm -hmm. first experience and if there's like a, you know, a a generation or a massive scale transformation of what university classrooms and pedagogy looks like, it Mm -hmm. actually doesn't take super long to make some changes in expectations and what's normal and normative because every crop of students is, you know, on campus for only four or five years, And so the ability to like set new normals and new expectations actually is quite strong in a way that that for me was like a really helpful reframing because what I'm thinking about, you know, inherited patterns and structures of domination, these are like patterns and habits and structures that, you know, confirm and reproduce themselves over centuries and therefore feel really hard to meaningfully shift. And I, I don't think what Miguel was saying was like, oh, well, we can you know, snap our fingers, and then, you know, liberation is tomorrow. But I think there is something about the way that we can reset habits and expectations over a relatively short period of time, at least in this context. Thank you for joining us. Pedagogies for Peace, Intersectional and Decolonial Teaching was made possible by the support of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame.
1: The music is by David Hazardous, and the podcast is produced and distributed by Hannah Heinzaker. You can find all the episodes of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: See you next time.